Chapter 25. As Margie skulked into the station after losing Sparn and Morales, she saw a man she didn't recognize in Grandisha's office. Ray and the man were standing behind the windowed door. Ray was gesturing, his visitor listening. Eight other members of the team remained in the bureau. All of them stopped their work and turned tired eyes towards her as she neared her desk. She snuck a peek down at herself to make sure everything was in order, like a man surreptitiously checking his zipper. One by one, each detective returned to his or her task, no longer interested in the straggler. Before sitting at her desk, Grenk asked, Who's the guy with the lieutenant? A voice from a desk abutting hers answered, The pisser. Margie pulled her battered chair out and sat. A semi-understanding look framed her face. She knew who the pisser was. Now if she could just figure out where she was supposed to have been. Ray said to keep her activities quiet. Luckily, no one asked. Grandisha's office door opened. The pisser came out and stood a foot away. Ray closed the door, then yelled something. The pisser shook his head and pointed to his ear. Ray cocked his head, opened the door a fraction, then yelled again. A thoughtful haze crossed Wrecker's face. Ray repeated the shout. The pisser hung his head for a second, looked up, and smiled. All eyes were glued to the pantomime. The silence was interrupted by a surprised, That's it! The other familiar noises immediately returned. Grandisha jerked the door wide open, shook Wrecker's hand, and pulled him back in. Ray stayed with him for a second, then rushed out to the middle of the detective bureau. He spoke quickly and forcefully. I need all the media up here right now. I want TV and radio exposure tonight. Newspaper stories tomorrow morning. Tell them we have new information and we need coverage. Ray returned to the office, spent five minutes with Wrecker, then hustled him out. One of the team escorted the pisser to his car to prevent anyone else from talking to him. Grandisha stood in his office doorway and loudly asked Grenk to come in. The inflection contained a tinge of displeasure. Margie rose and trod through the door like a disorderly kid entering the principal's office. She sat, readjusted her elbow-hugging sweater sleeves, crossed a leg, and demurely cowered. Ray closed the door and returned to his desk. He saw the reserved demeanor and asked, What's wrong? She hesitated, then spoke. Well, for starters, I let a high school kid outfox me. I doubt that makes you too happy. Grandisha backswept his hand in a dismissing motion. You were out on a limb with no backup or phone, and I told you to keep me advised. You did a hell of a job considering the situation. Margie perked up. Thanks. Then how come I got the cold shoulder from my brothers and sisters? Ray looked through the office windows at his crew. I'm sorry, but... I told them you weren't ready yet. You were going home to regroup. Maybe try it again later. I thought it was a good cover. I can live with that. Frank scratched her head, then continued. Did my moonlighting help? You betcha. Ray bent, turned a key, 
and pulled a file from his previously locked drawer. Morales you know about. He and his mother live with his aunt and her family. The mother is a prostitute, or at least had been a prostitute. The boy has no rap sheet. He does have a paternity pending. Margie broke in. The neighborhood looks rough. There was a party of some kind starting when I drove by. I got the feeling more than potato salad and hot dogs were going to be served. You're right. About once a month, squads get called to the location. The other kids' car and house are owned by Richard and Dolores Sparn. They have a son, also named Richard. He's a high school senior. Mr. and Mrs. Sparn don't even get traffic tickets. Their son has never been in trouble. He's a basketball star. I was in the school. I saw both of them. They're tight, almost like partners. If Morales is involved in anything, this kid is too. Could they have done this? Butchered people? Margie drew back in her chair, took a deep breath, and exhaled. I don't know. What do killers look like? I wouldn't exclude them. They had kind of a smug, cruel look about them. Grandisha snorted quietly. Interesting choice of words. The house Sparn visited belongs to an Albert Moffat and his wife. He's self-employed, sells things in bulk. She's a housewife, no kids. They've been married 33 years, no record of any kind. Margie asked, Any connection between the schoolboys and the Moffat guy? None that I can find, but that doesn't mean anything. Margie continued, How about between Moffat and the Donis people, or Zolas? Nothing in any of the information we've put together so far. Maybe we'll get lucky tomorrow when we recontact people, run names by them, see if anything rings a bell. The part about getting lucky wasn't lost on Margie. She tucked it away and asked a different question. So we're going to run with these guys. There are things that fit. Their age. Mari Cohn. As he finished speaking, Ray placed his large palm on his forehead, then slowly dripped his hand down the contours of his weathered face. His thumb and forefinger caught the corners of his mouth, followed the curve of his lower lip, and touched. His mouth opened into a wide O. He returned both hands to his face and rubbed both eyes vigorously with his fingertips. Margie thought of an old rag doll she had as a child, worn, torn, and falling apart, but her favorite doll all the same. Ray sat silent for a few more seconds, mind whirring, drawing on years of choosing the correct road to march down. His eyes narrowed and he said, My gut tells me it's them. But more than that, these killings were stupid, unplanned. Whoever did it got away because of blind luck. Somebody answering a phone rather than looking through a peephole. They made no provisions for getting in and getting out without being seen. No concern about being caught. Smug, cruel, high school kids. Margie couldn't tell if he was rationalizing or engaging her in conversation. She answered anyway. Okay, but the big question still remains. Why? An icy glare sprang from Ray's face. In the end, 
we'll find out the reason is a bizarre concurrence of improbable forces. Why won't help us catch them? We have to concentrate on who. They are the who. So what do we do? Ray rubbed his brow again. Nothing. We don't have any evidence. Yet. Tomorrow morning, we start balls out. Everybody will concentrate on Morales and Sparn. We'll follow every move they make. They'll give us everything we need. It was time for Margie to ask about getting lucky. What's going to happen between tonight and tomorrow morning? The media should be here soon. I'm putting Mari Cohn on every newspaper and TV station. Someone will remember Morales saying it, and they'll call in. That's our hook. When that happens, we're off and running. What if no one calls in? It'll happen. We're due for a break. Margie believed him. It made sense. So I forget about everything I did today. It never happened. You were home, healing. You're fine now. She smiled at Ray. You know I've healed. I'm fine. Grandisha said, I know. That's why we're having this discussion. A member of the team knocked on the closed door. Ray remained behind his desk and gestured for the detective to come in. The door opened and the officer said, The media is starting to straggle in. They should all be here in about ten minutes. The lieutenant said, When they're all here, bring them in. The door closed. Margie asked, What do you want me to do right now? Go home. Get a good night's sleep. Be ready for tomorrow. Margie started to rise from her chair. The reluctance she brought in had disappeared. She looked fresh and strong. Ray spoke before she turned to leave. I'm sorry about your husband. The words were heartfelt. Margie was touched. She rested her hands on the back of the chair, thumbs behind, fingers in front. Minimum pressure from her grasp caused little squeaking sounds. She smiled sincerely. It hasn't been as bad as I thought it would. The kids are crushed, but my sister has really been helping. But when I'm alone, it's not that bad. She released her grasp and lightly tapped soft fists on the top of the chair. I suppose our problems, the last year or so, have made things easier. We lived in the same house, but we didn't live together, not like husband and wife. Nothing further was said. Margie returned to her desk. She spent a half hour doing nothing, for appearance sake, then went home. Her co-workers didn't seem to notice. By the time she left, the media had arrived in mass. The small horde was ushered into Ray's office. He laid it on thick, treating Mari Cohn as the Rosetta Stone. The necessity for publicizing the word was stressed even though it was offensive. The media representatives didn't seem to have misgivings over sending profanity through the airwaves or print into homes. Nothing attracted wider audiences more than warnings about viewing or reading things that may offend. The concept wasn't lost on anyone in the room. 
Ray cautioned the group that his belief that the suspects are young and inexperienced was pure deductive reasoning based on the interpretation of known facts. Someone in the crowd interrupted and said, You mean guesswork? Ray laughed and answered, Yeah, but guesswork sounds bad. Grandisha finished the interview by warning everyone, again, about using certain names. They understood. All the pretty young correspondents, male and female, hurried off, anxious to transmit their images over electronic highways, satisfied that their knowledge of the story couldn't be expanded. A few grizzled newspaper reporters, believing that there were always questions to be asked and agendas to be investigated, remained. One of the especially obdurate beatmen peppered the lieutenant with questions about the timing, necessity, and prologue of the hastily called news conference. His whiskey-veined nose smelled something. He just couldn't identify the aroma. Ray parried perfectly. The stragglers, facing deadline constraints, ran out of time. Plus, they had dealt with Grandisha on prior occasions. They knew continued chipping wouldn't reveal anything new. Each newshound left with the vague premonition that tomorrow would be a busy day. None believed in coincidences. As the journalists filed out through the detective bureau, a records technician was winding his way to Ray's office. New reams of scientific reports were ready. The pile was plopped on the lieutenant's desk without comment. Grandisha spent an hour muddling through the confusing jargon. The prints from the spent shell casings at the bar were almost perfect matches to some partial prints found at the Donis apartment. At least two of the tavern killers were involved in the other mayhem. Ray knew the fucks were the same, without evidence, but the confirmation felt good. His intuition was on the right track. Morales and Sparn were the ones. He just had to prove it. He needed to reach out and touch someone to share the good feelings. Ray called Jules and Liz. They chatted for 20 minutes. Each raised the other's spirits. Jules wasn't talkative. His pain was personal, not to be shared, but he sounded better. Liz was garrulous. By the time Grandisha was able to convince her to end the conversation, they were laughing like old friends. Her language was salty, but as with all true wordsmiths, she made it an endearing quality. John Lapico walked in without knocking and sat. His somber, tired appearance intruded on the mirth created by Liz Pranit. What is there to be happy about? He crankily asked. I'm going to catch me some killers. The coroner scooched forward at attention. What happened? I need one more break. It'll come tomorrow. Lapico relaxed. Christ, you still only have the Spanish curse. You're betting on the come. That's not like you. Ray shrugged. You have to recognize when karma takes over. I can feel it. Tomorrow, everything breaks. Lapico exaggerated a head shake. Ray, 
Lucky breaks don't solve cases. Sifting through evidence does. You know that as well as I do. Brandisha maintained his pleasant veneer. Go home, John. You're starting to reach critical mass. The coroner left without protest, without saying goodbye. Some minutes passed before Ray stirred. He raised his bulk from the desk chair. His stoop felt more noticeable. He made a conscious effort to straighten the curved appearance. Gravity and bent bones kept pulling him down, like fish hitting bait. Fuck it, he thought, and stalked out, vulture-like, to the middle of the bureau. Eight members were still present, but not much work was being accomplished. It was time to give everyone a breather. Ray grabbed one of the nicked black telephones. The police department was always the last agency to have their equipment updated. He banged the phone on the top of an empty steel desk. The dull thump got their attention. Go home, guys. I think tomorrow will be a big day. I want everyone back, even if you're scheduled off. Margie already knows. Somebody call the other three. Make sure they're here. No comments were forthcoming. He returned to his office. One by one, the detectives straggled out. Some went home, some went elsewhere. All would be at work in the morning. The department was quiet, like before the Donis case. Other people were in the building, but Ray's immediate area was dormant. He tucked away all the reports on his desk, then relaxed. Hands behind his head, long body stretched out, leaning in his chair. He pondered his gamble. I'm fucked if these guys kill somebody tonight. He had traded questionable arrests for a paper trail investigation, but he needed time, at least one more night. Well, fuck. I set everything in motion. I have to roll with it now. Play it to the end. He grabbed some paperwork from one of the drawers, turned off the office light, and trudged out. Time to find a bottle. You're listening to Many Cones by Steve Lestina.